back oh oh yeah. welcome oh and we're back ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> <laughs> hi it's Brittany, bitch oh just kidding it's karen and marcy that's true oh. with murder of ages yes we are murder of ages beautiful thank you yes and we're gonna tell you some true crime from the pacific northwest that's right non-fiction you oh. can't make this shit up. Oh, I, yes, I'm not that creative. <laughs> I'm absolutely 100% M. Oh. This is, this is nonfiction still. Yeah, it still is. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. It, it's pretty fucked up. If you're in a good mood, we're here to ruin that for you. Yeah. I guess that's why you tuned in, though. Yeah. Hmm. Or it could make your day better. I don't know. Yes, it put things into perspective. Yeah. Yeah, my day's going shitty because I cut up my new debit card, but I also <laughs> could have been cut up into little bits. <laughs> yes. Yep, exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better. Well, since we're rolling, I am past today, so I get to go first. Yep. Means my... True crime nonfiction tale happened before 1985. That's right. Karen has a present one for us. I do. After 1985. Yes. In the Pacific Northwest. I think so. Do you think we need to clarify what that is? I think people know by now. I mean, you guys can Google it. I'm just kidding. Beautiful. <laughs> God, I turned into Marcy. What is wrong? Bravo, Karen. Um, no, Pacific Northwest is Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Yeah. That's it. Nailed it. Yep. No Google needed. Nope. Suck it, Google. <laughs> we have Karen. <laughs> and that's oh, the shit. title. I'm of our never episode. gonna make it through this. Okay. <laughs> My sources, Wikipedia, and a K-O-B-I, so I'm going to say Kobe, five news station. Oh, yes. Article written by Amanda Rose. And she actually wrote this just in August of 2020. Oh, wow. So I'm going to take you back. Labor Day weekend. I was 17. Bought a Coke and some gasoline. Mm, Yep. You know that one? Yep. I went down to the county fair. Yeah. That wasn't Kid Rock. I don't know. It's like a night. <laughs> no, Kid Rock did the summer, the summer one. Right? Yeah. I don't know. Where he took the beat from an old song and. Oh yeah. All... This one was like a '90s or 2000 country song. I thought that's what it was. No, but it was actually Labor Day weekend, 1974. Oh okay. Pre 2000s, 90s. Time. <laughs> I need to go to bed. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Focus, Marcy. Okay, so the Cowden family, they're from White City, Oregon, which is in southern Oregon close to Medford. So Medford's really close to the California border in southern Oregon. Okay. All right. Do you geographically see where we are? Part of the family, so we have 27-year-old Richard, his 22-year-old wife, Belinda. Whoa, Belinda. Isn't it fun to say? Belinda. Wasn't there a witch named Belinda? 
Oh, Glinda. Uh, <laughs> was it Glinda? Yeah, Glinda. The good witch? Yes. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Belinda. <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Oh, Let's my go. gosh. Okay. They have their five-year-old son, David, and five-month-old son, Melissa. Daughter. <laughs> We're never going to so make sorry. it through this. Daughter, Melissa. Okay. Like many Americans, they're spending their long weekend, last weekend of summer, camping along Carberry Creek in the Applegate. So... That's all near, this is all near in Southern Oregon, near Medford. There are all these little towns sprinkled throughout. Okay, so the town of Copper was very close to where they were camping, so Richard and David, the son, decided to walk to the store. They purchased a quart of milk. A little fun fact for you, because I knew you were going to ask. Mm-hmm. Copper no longer exists. Oh. It's now part of Applegate Lake. Oh. And that happened in 1980. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. So that night, the owner of ge- of the little general store and Belinda's mother left to meet the family for dinner at their campsite. Okay. Okay. No family was there. <gasps> mm-hmm. uh-uh. All they find is a plastic dishpan full of cold water, the keys to uh, the truck, Belinda's purse were all on the picnic table, as well as a diaper bag. The camp stove was still set up. And the milk that Richard had bought earlier sat on the table, uh, half full. Ooh. Don't drink that. So, <laughs> Don't drink that milk. I'd be a little curdled. <laughs> Sour. <laughs> Unable to locate her daughter and grandchildren and son-in-law, Belinda's mother panicked um, when she saw more items lying on the ground. There was his watch which was expensive as well as a wallet that contained $21. Boom, equivalent to $109 Whoa. in today's money. Whoa, big spender. Hello inflation. Yeah. She also found an open pack of cigarettes, which was the brand that Belinda smoked. And the family truck still had their clothing inside. The only items of clothing missing are their bathing suits. Hmm. So Melinda's Belinda's mother left the campground to go find police. So the sheriff troopers arrive at the scene and Lieutenant Mark Kazar, who headed up the case, said that they actually delayed searching about a day because there wasn't indica- any indication that anything had really even happened at the campsite. Just their items were left. Mm. So they, yeah. Okay. 1974. Yeah. So the following morning, listen to this. Okay, okay. The Cowden's pet basset hound, Droopy, was found scratching at the front door of the Copper General store. Oh, not Droopy. He's alive, but he's alone. I know. That's sad. Yeah. All right. Dogs know, you know? They do. He was going to go find help. Yeah. Uh, former Oregon State Police Detective Richard Davis. So, a lot of my information comes from the article written on Kobe by Amanda. Okay. And what she did was she actually interviewed the last surviving police detective from the case. Oh, wow. Okay. So, a lot of, there's some a lot of quotes directly from him. Okay. Which, strangely, some of them contradicted the Wikipedia page. Well. But we're just rolling with the punches. You know, can't trust Wikipedia. Or you can't trust an 81-year-old. Mm. 
kidding. Both. <laughs> All right. So this is Richard Davis. And he believes they were abducted between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. that day. And he doesn't think they left willingly. Uh, multiple agencies, including the Oregon State Patrol, Sheriff's Office, and some other police departments, searched for months on end. Um, they were looking for buzzards, because buzzards will lead you to a body. But it What's was... What's a buzzard? You know what a buzzard is? Like a bird? Yeah. Like oh. a vulture. Oh. Yeah, they eat um, dead things. Ew. Creatures. Gross. You see them at the coast. Mm. I had some really good pictures of some vultures. Mm. They were eating a dead whale. Gross. Or was it a seal? It was a seal. Oh. Not a dead whale. That would be really cool. It was a seal. <laughs> or a walrus. No, it was a seal. Jesus okay. Christ. Where are we? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but this was in January, and so they're still searching, and it goes into January. Okay. They're looking for buzzards. Unfortunately, buzzards fly south for the winter, mm. more south than southern Oregon, so <laughs> they didn't see any. The case started to go cold. Officers are losing help. They would get some tips, but a lot of them were, you know, we saw the family in Seattle, and then they saw them in San Francisco. Just like kind of random. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure there was a reward posted. Oh, yeah. So probably looking for the reward. Oh, yeah. Seven months later. So this is when our retired detective Davis takes over the case okay. as lead. April 12th, 1975. Two gold prospectors from Forest Grove, Oregon, are hiking through the woods near Carberry Creek. They started up a little game trail from the level camp spot up the hill, and they find a skull. Oh, no. So, a little bit further, they find the decomposing body of an adult male tied to a tree on a steep hillside. Oh, my gosh. In a small cave nearby... The bodies of an adult female, a child, and an infant. Ugh. Positive identification of the bodies were done via dental records, and it's the Cowden family. Mm. And they are located about seven miles from their campsite. So you're thinking, I don't know if you're thinking this, I was, seven miles, that's a good chunk of terrain to cover. So... Were they forced to walk that seven miles? Were they killed at the campsite? Well, it didn't look like anyone was killed at the campsite. No. Put into a car and driven? I mean, I don't know what how rough it is with four-wheeler. Yeah, because you're not getting me to walk seven miles. Mm-mm. So. No, I could barely get you to do... Well, I thought it was... We thought it was two and a half, but it turned out to be four. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> it, it had to be at least 15, it felt like. It did. It, I guess so. it felt like a million miles. <laughs> but yeah, you having a stranger, so, you know, threatening, mm-hmm. you know, my family, and then whatever, making us walk or taking us somewhere seven miles. It's a good chunk. Yeah. Um, autopsies revealed that Belinda and David had died as a result of a 22 caliber gunshot. This is five-month-old Melissa had died from severe head trauma. Oh. So they think that 
Richard died at where he was tied up, but they were unable to get to determine what what cause of death. Yeah, he died from a gun. Okay, this is where they contradict each other. Oh, okay. Article said they couldn't find cause of death. Wikipedia said caliber. I'm going to actually go with Wikipedia on this because they had quite a few sources listed. Mm. So I'm going to say Wikipedia. All right. Now, but they, so they think Richard died there, but Belinda and the two children, they think kill, were killed elsewhere and then put in the cave to be hidden. Which the cave was seven miles. The cave and the, where the dad was tied up. They're all kind of in the same vicinity. So the y- bodies. Wait, so you're saying that Belinda and the kids were killed and then taken? That's what they think. So this person had to carry Belinda and the kids. Yes. I wonder if there's more than one. Ooh. Or like you said, like a four-wheeler or something. But now that I think that and muddle it, a four-wheeler, they would have found tracks, oh, right? that's true. But damn, uh, this this person or persons, they, they got to work out because I'm not carrying no This is 1974. And... Have you seen pictures of people in 1974? Everyone is fit in 1974. Yes, but some people <laughs> that I have done stories on are also not. Oh, that's true. Who that's are serial true. killers. That's true. So. Okay. Um, so our Detective Davis, he bagged everything up. All the way down to the mineral soil. However, the evidence was really scarce after more than half a year of being exposed to the elements. All that remained was a single bullet belonging to a Marlin manufactured rifle. Their single piece of evidence. Okay. The Cowden family murders of 1974 sent shockwaves across Jackson County. Now, the police do have a suspect. Dwayne Lee Little. Oh. You ready to hear about our friend Dwayne? Dwayne And Little. all of his horrifying accomplishments? Yes. In 1966, he's convicted of raping and killing teenager Orla Fay Flips in Springfield, Oregon. Wow. He was 15. Of course. <sighs> he spent eight years at the Oregon State Penitentiary. And then he was paroled and he moved with his family or to his family home in Rutch or Rouch, R-U-C-H, Rouch, Oregon, which is all one of those little towns sprinkled real close to the campsite, close to Mm -hmm. Copper, close to Medford. Mm -hmm. So the day before the family's disappearance, he, uh, Dwayne, hauled a load of steel to Crescent City and police think that he was coming back and he came off of uh, Thompson Creek road and went over the top and possibly saw the family down at their campsite yeah because he they, he's in the vicinity and he was actually spotted at a local restaurant around noon the day the family went missing mm. and that same afternoon an elderly couple claimed they saw a car matching Dwayne's description driving a man and a woman um so the the eyewitness said there was a man driving, a woman in the middle, and another man on the right side. She says, why I remember it is the road was very narrow and we were going slow and she looked like she was crying. Uh-oh. But, of course, 
no license plate number. Mm -hmm. This was the only eyewitness. We know how reliable eyewitnesses can be. Yeah. Learning. Yeah. And so they're now they're trying to connect Dwayne to the Marlin rifle. They're going through and they have a list of people who have purchased Marlin rifles. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a substantial amount of people. But one person includes his mother. Oh. And that was enough for the police to get a search warrant for Dwayne's home. Mm -hmm. They don't find the gun. But they did find a following spring, which must be a part of a gun. Mm -hmm. Sure. If anybody want to email us, murderofages at gmail.com and clarify, <laughs> that would be great. And it would fit a Marlin twenty two rifle. But that's not enough to arrest somebody right. for that. However... Dwayne's girlfriend told law enforcement that she had seen him with a 22 caliber gun during Christmas time in 1974. Hmm. Murders happened in September of 74. So oh. a few months later. Yeah. Uh, they were able to arrest him for being a felon in, in possession of a concealable firearm, and they brought him into questioning. Our Detective Davis said, I told him to take a polygraph, and I had a polygraph examiner standing by. I said, you take a polygraph on account of the murdered Cowden family, even though I can't use it in court, take it and I will dismiss the gun case. So, yeah, pretty sweet deal for Mr. Duane. Yeah. I mean, if he failed, they could look into him further and hopefully tie him to it, right? But, I mean, even if... He, if he just takes it, he gets the gun charge dismissed, and he doesn't go back to prison. That's true. But he said no. Oh. Which, well, probably guilty, right? I don't know. I just think polygraphs are stupid, and I don't know. Always say no. Oh, I guess Davis agrees. Or, I mean, Dwayne. Dwayne Little. Uh, so that's the last time our Detective Davis got to talk to him. And so that sent Mr. Duane back to jail. On January 12th, 1975, that's when he went back to jail for the possession of the firearm. Yeah, I mean, at, for him, he should have, just because then that would have dropped that gun charge, right? Yeah, but I mean, if he was afraid of even being hinted at being guilty or sure, failing. Sure, sure. Uh, he's paroled again April 26th in 1977. June 2nd, 1980, pregnant 23-year-old Margie Hunter is driving on Highway 99 near Portland and her car breaks down. So she starts, it's 1980, she starts hitchhiking. And guess who picks her up? No. Dwayne. Dwayne Doolittle. Just little. <laughs> <laughs> not, not Dr. Doolittle we're talking about. Dwayne Don't Little. <laughs> You've never seen anything like it. You ever watched the old Doolittle movie with <laughs> Rex long, Harrison? Long time ago. It's pretty good. Eddie Murphy one is good too. Robert Downey Jr. one. No, I didn't see uh, that one. The no. kids watched it, and I kind of peeked and was like, mm, "Ooh, better not." No, thank you. Sorry, any Robert fans out there? <laughs> sorry, not sorry. sorry All right. Sorry. So our friend Dwayne, he sexually assaults and beats. Margie. Fortunately, her and her child survive. Oh, she's wow. Pregnant. 
and he is charged and convicted of attempted homicide and sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. Wow. How about that? And he is still serving time in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Wow. Thank you, justice system. So before retiring in 1992, Detective Davis says he never gave up hope that they would crack the case. One kind of good thing that came out of this, little positive note, Detective Davis created the Major Crime Death Investigation Unit in the 80s, mm-hmm. and the Multi-Agency Homicide Investigation Team serves Jackson County to this day. Oh, wow. So that's kind of neat. So he says, doing this, failing as miserably as we failed, made me a better officer. Mm. Years down the lane, well, fine. Davis decided to try his luck one last time, and he reached out to convicted murderer Russell Lauren Obraminski, who was in a cell with Dwayne in prison. Mm-hmm. Now, Russell claims that Dwayne confessed to the Cowden murders. Unfortunately, all the evidence is circumstantial, right. and they're not able to charge him. The Cowden family murders in 1974 are recognized by some as one of the strangest unsolved murders in America. To this day, Oregon State Police say there are no new leads and no new suspects. It's unsolved, bitch. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. I had never heard of it. And Neither. I thought, oh, who That's doesn't good. enjoy a good unsolved mystery? That was good. Poor family annihilated. I know. While they're trying to enjoy their Labor Day weekend. (sighs) Just what happened? Why the bathing suits? Yeah. Where are the bathing suits? Why tie the husband? I mean, did he tie the husband up and then have his way with the wife? Mm. But there, Mm -hmm. I don't know if there wasn't evidence of that. There wasn't anything in the article about it. Yeah. Just so many questions and, you know, things that happened with, they took 24 hours to start searching. Seven months later, the bodies are found. Just That's what's frustrating. Because it's probably, I didn't look, I should have looked this up, but a huge amount of acreage to search, mm-hmm. I'm sure, out there in the forest. Especially the back in that time, too. Like, I'm sure if something... Like, that would have happened with the technology we have. Maybe, you know, we could have found something, at least, that could have helped out a little bit. But, man, in the 70s, that's... I don't even think about, like, up in the Blue Mountains. Yeah. Get lost up there. I don't know. But that was mine for my past. That was good. Good job. For you today. Thank you. Okie dokie. My turn. I'm going to read us a dictionary. <sighs> I have a long one. Um, Strap I, into your booster seat, friends. Yeah. Yeah. Bu- buckle up. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have an unsolved really? mystery for you. Whoa. This was not planned, ladies and gents. Um, I will let me tell you my sources before I forget. Mm-hmm. Sources are the News Tribune Part One, Two, and Three by Sean Robinson, Unresolved dot me, okay, um, the Resource Center for Cold Case Missing Children's Cases. No, children. Okay, deep 
breath. <sighs> okay, this is the story of the unsolved case of Misty Copsy. So, people are fucking obsessed. Really? With this case. This is why... I'm excited. There's so... There's a lot of information. Okay. But... Uh, who knows if it's true or not, right? So how, there's a lot of theories. How did this come to your attention? Um, I heard it on Crime Junkie podcast. Oh, okay. But I also remember it from... It must have been on um, Unsolved Mysteries or something. Oh, okay. Like, so you'd heard it before. Yeah, yeah. Because right. I totally remember. And then I kind of freaked out because I thought you did it. And so I was mm. like, shit, because I, I totally remember the story. And so I had to look back at all of her stories to make sure you didn't do it. Anyways, you didn't. Okay, the year is 1992. Mm. The setting is... Oh, what's the main idea? Characters, <laughs> plot points. Thank you. Yes, walk us through it, Karen, please. Six traits of writing. Let's go. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying here. Uh, setting, a small town, barely on the radar of the world. Oh. Well, I guess for people who aren't from around here. Uh, oh. It's uh, in Puyallup, Washington. Barely on, I, Puyallup's pretty big, isn't it? Mm. I think Puyallup's pretty good. It's smaller than Walla Walla. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Mm. Well, back in 1992, I guess. Um... So, Puyallup is most well-known for the fair. Oh, yep. That's where I heard it. Yeah. Of it. Yep. Um, so, uh, the fair of the same night that pops up twice a year, once in the fall, and again in the spring. Oh, I didn't know there were two fairs. I guess so. I wonder if each one comes with the carnival? Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something to look into. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's get right on that. Uh, so, Pu- Puyallup. For those of you who don't know, it's a suburb um, right outside of Tacoma, which is outside of Seattle, Washington. Uh, So it has grown, but back in 1992, it had a population around uh, 25,000. So Misty was born in 1978 to two parents, Diana and Buck. They divorced just months after Misty was born, and she ended up living with her mother, Diana. Misty was an excellent student and spent a lot of her free time involved in student athletics. She played softball, basketball, and volleyball, all while keeping an A-B average at school. Mm, You go, girl. I know. She was also pretty popular. Um... She had a goofy sense of humor. She just was very bubbly and... I'm sorry. Are you describing me right now? (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) Complete opposite. Um, And she had her BFF, Trina. Um, Trina. Trina. Oh, the llama in Napoleon Dynamite was Tina. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to make a llama joke. Oh, uh, yeah. So, let's see. Uh, Missy grew up with her mother, Diana, in a Puyallup um, mobile park called Green Meadows. 
Um, but Diana wanted Missy to have a better home than a trailer park, so they ended up moving to a duplex mm-hmm. in Spanaway. Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. It so sounds it, really good. Okay, thank you. Um, in 1992. Um, oh. That's when it started, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Why? I'm just getting ready. For, you know, it's like any... You have the happy part, like, oh, life is normal, blah, 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 and then shit hits oh, the fan. Yeah. So, Span Away is um, a stone throw away from suburb, um, and the environment is still new, and Misty obviously didn't know anyone, um, so she was lonely. She didn't really have, you know, her friends there anymore. Um, Diana would be gone during the nights because she worked as a caregiver for a woman um, who was in her 90s. And how old is Misty at this point? She is 14. Oh, just 14. Okay. Yeah. So probably was that like a freshman in high school? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luckily, they didn't move too far away. So, um, you know, she would still hang out with her buddies like on the weekends. Okay. So... This is now the summer of 1992. Um, she was straight, according to her friends. So that meant, so back back in the day, straight meant like no drinking, no sex, oh, no, okay. you know, you're straight edge, yeah, you know. Gotcha. Okay. But of course, you know, boys were into that because, oh, that's the good girl, you know, that's. Ooh, I'm gonna try to like convert her into like the bad girl type of thing, you know? Oh, like boys, my God. yeah, boys, stop it! I know, stop, oh. boys. So of course, there's this boy, Ruben. He's an 18 year old boy. Ooh, and she's 14. Mm-hmm. Mm. He, um, <laughs> this article describes Ruben as a. An 18-year-old with a pile of hair and a beaten car. A green 1974 uh, Chevrolet Nova. You want to see a picture of them? Oh, that was George's first car. That's his pile of hair. That is a fucking pile of hair if I have ever seen one. Yeah, it literally just... (laughs) Let me see that again. It looks like if you just got your hair cut and you just, like, grabbed it all together and just, like, bloop. Just put it on. It's just a pile. So that's Reuben. It's like a pile of pubes. Yep. Sitting on top of his head. All right. So you got Reuben in your mind? (sighs) Unfortunately, (laughs) yes, I do, Karen. And I cannot unsee that big pile of hair. Damn it. So (laughs) Reuben uh, was a dropout. And he was too old for the gaggle of girls at the trailer park. Oh, my And he wasn't Missy's type, thank goodness. She preferred the jocks and the teen idols. Good for you, Missy. I know, you go, Missy. Stay away from the piles. (laughs) Yeah. Of hair. But Reuben could drive, and that was a big deal. Oh, so she used him. Yeah. Tease. I know. You know, actually, his hair do... Yeah, that's what's in style now. I know. That, the like, kids with perm. the perm on top? Yeah. What is that? I don't know. I mean, when we were in school, or I should say when I was in school because I'm a little bit older, it was the bleached, like the boys gelled all their hair down yes. flat and then flapped up a little bit at the top yeah. and bleached just that section. Oh, my God. I 
God, that was so hot. <laughs> the frosted tip. <laughs> oh God. I'm so I'm oh. I'm a big enough person and you know, good with myself and I can admit that. Oh, she's blushing, you guys. <laughs> I am. Oh my gosh, she is so red right now. Well don't say that, then you make it worse. Oh, she is. I have Ooh. a really bad Ooh. I wear my what my emotions on my sleeve. Oh yeah. On my face. That's okay. All the time. That's why I love you. <laughs> Okay, but obviously, Mama Bear, she knows better. Good. Diana did not like Reuben. Once, she actually picked up the phone when Misty was talking with the sleaze bag. So, for those of you youngins, back in the day, when you had a landline um, and you would pick it up, you could hear what other people were saying. So, you know, there weren't cell phones back in 92. Wait, are you saying when you pick up a phone, when it rings, you can hear people on the other end? No. Is that what you're explaining? No. Like when I'm on the phone, and then if you picked up the oh, other if one. I, if you have family has two phones. Yes. I get what you're saying. Yes. Oh, yeah. Gotta, some families didn't have two phones. And you're you right, have to cover right. the mouthpiece part so they yep. can't hear you breathing. Yep. yep. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I would always spy on my brother. Oh, my God. Yes. Poor so. Michael. Whatever, he probably didn't. Okay, anyways. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, Diana overheard um, a conversation. And Reuben had said, I get horny just looking at you, Misty. <sighs> Diana oh. proceeded to tell Misty to hang the phone up. Things uh, between Misty and Diana were what you'd expect from a teenage girl and her mother. They had their issues, but... Overall, we're pretty good. I mean, she's a single mom. You know, she did the best. best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, she worked a good job, but worked long hours, did the best. I mean, Missy was a good kid overall. Um, Diana did have a bit of an alcohol problem, but it was nothing that kept her from living her life, and it didn't necessarily put Misty in danger. So I don't – I don't know. Just a little side note. Yeah. Not really pertinent to the story. It gets into it later, and you'll see why. Okay. Um, As I sip my wine. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like, and yeah, who's to say, like, what's what's an alcohol problem, right? Yeah. Like, drinking, you know, a couple beers after work? Like, is that a pro- You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyways. Okay. So, the... Two showed an incident sometime over the summer, that same summer, in which Diana couldn't track down her daughter and actually filed a missing persons report. How scary, like pre-cell phones, pre-microchips implanted with the COVID vaccine, (laughs) anybody. Right. Um, So she called the police, you know, everything. She later found Missy in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. I guess there was some miscommunication, whatever, confusion. Then whether Diana was too embarrassed by the situation or whatever, she never called the police back to inform them that Missy Oh, no, was so home. they're still looking and think there's a 14-year-old missing. Well, the weird thing is, is that the police never followed up. Oh. So. So they were thinking runaway, maybe. Well, so technically, there's still a file of a missing report. So I don't think the police ever looked. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. 
Okay. September 17th, uh, 1992. Misty had finally convinced her mother to let her go to the fair without adult supervision. Oh, oh. She was going with her best friend, Trina. Um, her mother had to work that night. Um, she finally agreed and she said that she could take the girls there, but that the girls would need to take the bus back home. And the girls were familiar with the bus system, whatever. So both girls planned on taking the 840 bus back home, uh, which would take Misty from downtown Puyallup to Spanaway. And that also meant that they had the entire afternoon and evening to be at the fair and have fun. And they did. So they spent the whole day there. And, of course, um, it's, you know, 8.40 rolled around and the two missed the bus. Oh, no. They had to call Ruben. Can you just let me finish? No. (laughs) This is a long story, so we got to get through this. Okay. 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 So that was the last bus of the night. So... Basically, it was about 8.45, and Misty had made a call to her mother um, telling her she had missed the bus. Diana was obviously upset because she was being irresponsible. Um, Diana couldn't leave her job because she couldn't leave, you know, the 97-year-old woman home alone. So she told... Misty that she needed to um, look in her electronic organizer that she had just gotten for Christmas um, to call someone for a ride. Misty immediately blurted out that she would get a ride from Ruben. And of course, Diana, you know, freaked out and said no. Um, So she said, keep looking through your electronic organizer and you know, call people and ask for a ride and call me back and let me know, you know, who's going to pick you up. Um, That call never came. Diana never spoke to Misty again. How many times has she gone? I know as a parent, I would. Why didn't I just go get her? Right. Oh, that poor mother. (sighs) I know. The guilt. I know. Oh, my heart is breaking for her. I know. I can't, I can't even fathom that. Yeah. And you think at 14, you know, that, that sh- it sh- which should be fine mm-hmm. to be out at the fair with your BFF at 14. Oh, yeah. The shit I and, was doing when I was 14. And catching a bus ride home. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Especially Pial, if you said smaller yeah. suburb. Oh, God. Yeah, it's smaller mm. than here. Walla Walla's over 35,000. Um. Okay, so Diana, obviously concerned. She didn't get a follow-up phone call. She spent the rest of her night in worry. Unfortunately, there was little she could do. Um, Missy had called from a payphone, so of course she, you know, could only assume that Missy had found a ride home and just forgotten to call her mother back. Um, If she had gotten a ride from Ruben, she would just have to, whatever, talk to her later, you know. As long as she was home, right? You know, that was all she was worried about. So Diana would um, return home a few hours later 
she expected to find Missy, you know, on the couch watching TV or sleeping in her bedroom. Unfortunately, she found a quiet, empty house. Oh. Missy wasn't home, or at least not yet. Diana began making phone calls, calling everyone she knew. She called Trina, Ruben. Um, she called her mother. So Trina made it. Well, she doesn't know. Oh, okay. She's just now calling. Okay. Right. Um, she called her mother, which is Missy's grandmother. She called other friends, and she called 911. Uh, Trina's family didn't answer because it was, you know, really early in the morning, midnight, or, you know, whatever oh. time Diana gets off work. Um, Missy's grandma didn't hear from her. Reuben did answer, and he told Diana that Missy had called him asking for a ride, but he didn't have uh, enough gas to pick her up. And that was really it. So, obviously, she began to panic. She called 911, um, but was informed that she had to wait 30 days <gasps> to report Missy Excuse me? a missing person. 30 days? Yeah. We've heard, like... 48 hours. I never heard 30 days. Right. What? So the dispatcher said... <gasps> that until... dispatcher needs to be fired. Yeah. The dispatcher said until then, she uh, was a supposed runaway. <gasps> mm-hmm. No. Yeah. Oh. So obviously, Indeed. in panic, she spent the whole morning next day just driving around what do you do yeah she just tried to retrace her steps from the fair um she did end up going to trina's house and she puts a note on the front door to give her a call um because you guys this is before cell phones Mm -hmm. and stuff you know you gotta actually go places and write notes and if there is a carnival at this fair? Uh, carnies, hello. Hello. Clowns? Ooh. You know? Um, so Diana eventually filed a report with the Pierce County Sheriff's Department at roughly 1.30 that afternoon and found out that the 911 dispatcher had been off base with the uh, 30-day no remark. shit. Um... But now, after trying to track down her daughter, she was left with a jurisdiction headache. Um, So Missy had disappeared in Puyallup, which meant that Pierce County couldn't intervene without the Puyallup PD's go-ahead. Oh, my God. We have a child missing. Right. Was this, I'm wondering if this is pre-Amber Alert. Oh, good question. I bet it is. Good question. Because that's fairly recent. Yeah. So 1996 is when Amber Alert was made a thing. Got it. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. few years after. America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. Mm -hmm. Named after Amber Hagerman, the Mm -hmm. nine-year-old abducted and murdered in Texas. Yeah. It's horrible. Um... Okay, so the same police department that had told her uh, Missy was officially a runaway until a month had Mm -hmm. transpired. So, yeah, basically 
Diana was trying to just do her own investigation, obviously. What else do you do? Oh, my God. And then she also has a job. Right. How do you go to work? Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. But then again, yeah. oh, my, that's so much. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Luckily, I mean, I don't know, I guess just thinking, like, I'm thinking, of, like, in your shoes, good thing she doesn't have any other kids. You know, because, like, can you imagine trying to, like, also mother, like, your other child, but also, like, try to work oh, and yeah. look for your missing child. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Um. So, Trina had finally returned um, Diana's phone call. Um, and she told her what had happened. The two separated while Missy was on her way to the bus stop. Um, and... Trina had began walking home to Sumner. So apparently Trina hadn't heard or seen Missy since. So Trina lived the other way. So Trina just oh, walked home. So Trina's like, well, oh, why wouldn't you just have Misty go with you? Oh. So on a hunch, Diana called Reuben again. He was gone, but his teenage roommate James answered. He told Diana that Reuben had, in fact, gone with his uncle to pick up Misty the oh, night before. Oh, uncle. Mm. So this, this dramatic turn of events gave Diana more than enough reason to think it's Reuben. So Diana called again later in the afternoon and Reuben was home. Where's my kid? She demanded to know. Reuben would explain that his roommate, James, had it all wrong. Um, that he didn't go pick up Missy, but had actually gone with his uncle to a party and then just woke up a couple hours later. So, one immediately had to question how his story had changed so dramatically in just a few hours from being too poor to afford gas to now going to a party and I don't know who knows but Diana obviously like I think she's just so fucking panicked at this point she just doesn't even care right now you know what I mean like I don't know so if the Puyallup police were correct um and Misty was just a runaway or she was just at a someone else's house you know maybe she would be returning home soon um but diana was doing what she could she ended up uh making her own flyers and she began posting those around everywhere um and um she especially went downtown where the area that missy was Mm -hmm. and she like had a picture of missy on it and like you know put phone number please call me um she would make contact with missy's friends pleading them to contact her uh she promised them you know they wouldn't get in trouble or anything she just wants to know where they are or where she is um a few days later she actually tracked down the bus driver that had been driving that route. Uh, He told Diana that he remembered seeing Misty that night. Um, 
when he was finishing up and wasn't heading to Spanaway again. He recalled telling Misty to catch the next bus to Tacoma, which was 10 miles out of the way, but then that bus had a bus coming back to Spanaway that she could catch. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's just like an extra yeah. bus. So he was thinking maybe she did that, but, you know, he he's yeah. not sure. He, you know, I don't know. He kind of just said that was really it. I don't know. As a bus driver, you're like, fuck. Yeah, I see you so know? many people and right. try to help as much as you can. Right. And, you know, you're given these certain routes. You can't really go yeah. out of your way. I don't know. Um, so family members and friends obviously would call and check up and asking if police were any closer. Um, and Reuben mm-hmm. was one of the one who kept calling too, asking if police had uncovered anything. Mm, fishy. Which obviously is very suspicious um yeah i don't know but not calling to say like have you heard from her i'm really worried no it's a police found anything right am i a suspect right okay so missy has now been missing for about a week oh my gosh um And now Diana was finally able to file a missing persons report with the Puyallup Police Department. So this was September 23rd. Um, Diana recalls the mood of the police officers dealing with her that day. They were all assured that Misty was a runaway. Which is just so frustrating. Like, I understand this is the 90s. But this case is so frustrating because of the law enforcement, which is which is frustrating because obviously, you know, you want to be like team cops, you know, but oh, not. Oh, why? A week? A week. This is a 14 year old we're talking about. Uh, I know. Well, and the f- if the mom is this upset and no, this is not a normal thing. Right. Take it seriously. I know. And the fact that the dispatcher (gasps) said 30 days. That dispatcher was probably just about to get off shift and was like, I don't want to deal with this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Sergeant Erm Carver, a Puyallup police officer, was in charge of the investigation. So, remember this fucker. Mm. Sergeant Carver. Okay, so he uh, would task some detectives to investigate the area around the fairgrounds and hope that someone had seen Misty. No one had, so they moved on to investigating Diana, which I get. They always investigate person closest. Mm-hmm. So this is when uh, this poor mother feels so bad for her. What they found was a woman with a couple of DUIs on her record um, and a prior conviction for welfare fraud. Diana was the first to admit that she wasn't an angel and had a battle with alcoholism for most of her adult life. Mm. Um, 
she had admitted to collecting food stamps. Um, she was a single mother in her 20s, though. You know, I... So, but it was welfare fraud, correct? So collecting right. food stamps when she didn't qualify for them. So fudging on the paperwork, I, basically. I'm probably. assuming so, yeah. Okay. Which, I mean, if you can't get it and you need it, you got to hustle and do what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, right. And I mean, it doesn't sound like they're getting much help from the dad, the biological uh, okay. dad. Yeah, it doesn't. You know? I mean, she worked her ass off to get them a nicer place to live out of the trailer park. Right. Like, look at that record. When, where is the dad right now helping find his missing daughter? Do we find anything more out about? I wonder if he... No. I don't, I mean, I don't even... I mean, when does he even know that he has a... Well, and I mean, I read an updated article saying that he thinks that she's alive somewhere. Oh, okay. So he is aware he yeah, has a daughter. Yeah, he's aware, okay. but he, well. yeah, it's just stupid. Um, but in digging up Diana's skeletons, they also found out about that prior missing persons reports. Um, so now they're seeing her as like a... Oh. Like an unfit mother. Or um, what am I looking for? Like a... Uh, Shit. Neurotic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Sergeant Carver is seeing Diana as having this less than stellar reputation and someone with a history of uh, being dishonest. So, we're only supposed to help people who have a clean record? Is that how that's supposed to work? I don't Mr. know. Mr. Carver? Exactly. Is that his last name? Yeah. Yeah. So, on September 29th, Car- uh, Sergeant Carver met with Diana at Missy's. Uh, high school and would speak um, to a couple of her classmates. These kids had obviously rumors for days because, I mean, what kids don't? So, of course, um, one claimed to have gotten a phone call from Misty who said she was safe and sound in Olympia. Another claimed to have seen Misty at the Color Me Bad concert on September 21st. Um, obviously, later we find out that, uh, they were lying and they just wanted attention. Oh my gosh. Um, and, uh, neither of those kids were friends of Misty's. Wow. Um, yeah. So as, uh, Sergeant Carver and Diana were leaving the school, he told her that he was removing Misty from the missing persons database. No. And was going to add her as a runaway. Dick. Yeah. Wow. So obviously this was a punch in the gut for her. She knew that Missy wasn't a runaway. Um, The next day, Sergeant Carver spoke to a Seattle radio station, informing them that Missy Copsey who was referred to as a missing child by the local media, was actually a runaway. He also claimed that the mother, Diana, knew exactly where she was and that she was safe and sound. With this interview... the actual... It all came undone. The investigation froze, the flyers were taken down, (gasps) and everyone stopped looking for her. Mine, no words. Blown. No, words. I know. 
Okay, so here's where it gets fucking weird. Okay. Okay, so later. I'm ready. Let's get weird. Uh, yeah. Diana gets a phone call from a, a random saying that uh, he wanted to help her. So obviously she feels this glimmer of hope. She's like, oh my mm-hmm. God, finally someone wants to help me. Mm-hmm. This man is named Corey Bobber. Bubba. Bobber. Okay, so um, here is a little information on Corey. Please. Corey is obsessed with the Green River Killer. Okay. This, though, mind you, is before um, the Green River Killer is, as we know, Gary Ridgway. Before he's apprehended. Before we know he is Gary Ridgway. Okay. Okay, so we don't know. Because this is still in 92. We done the Green River Killer? Yes. Episode 20. Oh, I thought that was Ted Bundy. No. We haven't done done Ted Ted Bundy. Bundy? Nope. We have not. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) We did. No. Okay. Never mind. Watch too many documentaries. I'm confusing my realities here. So, Corey um, didn't know Missy or Diana, but he knew cops, and they knew him. Mm, Um, The relationship was uh, far from good. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. So, since November 13th, 1984, he had the date memorized, Bobber had argued that uh, Randy acted... Axiger, A-C-H-Z-I-G-E-R, a Puyallup resident and one-time acquaintance, was the Green River Killer. Oh, no. This poor yeah. guy. So the two men had known each other briefly in the early 80s. Corey's theory grew um, and made in 84 when the Green River case was at its height. So, Randy told uh, Corey the killer inserted rocks into his victim's remains. Um, He also publicly threatened to take care of Randy if authorities don't. Oh, shit. So, obviously, we know now that the Green River Killer is Gary Ridgway. Um... In 2003, he pleaded guilty to 48 counts of murder, but in 92, Corey didn't know that. I'm convinced Corey might be right. I think the police, that evidence has got it wrong. You know? You'd be looking at this guy a little bit closer. I mean, Corey, you'll see, Corey did years of investigation. I mean, what if we got the wrong guy, y'all? Who knows? Um, so, he didn't care that police had eliminated his suspect. As far as he was concerned, they were too stupid and corrupt to see the truth. <laughs> um, you too st- 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 stupid! <laughs> on September 13th, 1992, Corey spotted a revelation. Oh. He was organizing files, adding notes and articles to his binders oh, with no. tape, news, clippings, and single s- 
space longhand, he'd constructed a crude database. Wow. So he looked more closely at a pair of lost Puyallup girls, Kim DeLang, 15. She was killed in 1988. And Anna Shebet, oh my gosh, C-H-E-B-E-T-N-O-Y. Shebetnoy. Yeah. She was 14 and she was killed in 1990. They were killed two years and one month apart. So now it's September oh, 1992. Shit. Two years. Mm-hmm. <gasps> two years and one month since Anna was killed. So what if there was another serial killer operating? Because were, were they Piao up too? Yeah. I'm, oh. So the dates. What if Ruben really did have nothing to do with it? Huh? What if Ruben really did have nothing to do with it? I know. So the dates, obviously, etched, you know, a signature in Corey's head, a pattern. The killer was making a pattern. So the next morning, he called the Puyallup Police Department with the same warning that, uh, and spoke to Sergeant Carver. Oh, Who, of course, flicked him away like a nap. I wonder, well, were, were these girls also abducted? I, I, I'm just I wondering if there was a connection there. Or, you know, were they um, cause of death similar? Uh, you know, ways that would also tie them together other than just the two years apart and same age and I area? I think so. I think we find out later their bodies were found in the same place too or something. Oh, okay. So there was more tying them. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. yeah. I, we can't say that's similar to Misty's because we don't have a body. Right. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Corey insists he made the calls. Uh, he said, so for 17 years, and his endless notes and journals underline his claim. Uh, a few days after Corey claims he warned the police, Misty vanished. So Corey mm. talks to Diana, tells her everything, all of his theories, even tells her there's zero chance Misty is alive according to his theories obviously not exactly what a mother needs to hear but he's the only person who is willing to help her um on October 5th Corey calls Sergeant Carver of course who shuts Corey down again and further tells him that they pass the case to the sheriff's department because they still believe Misty is a runaway, which they consider her to be a runaway from home, and her home is in the sheriff's department uh, district. So now it's in their jurisdiction. Okay. So, uh, Corey calls the sheriff's department, and the deputy also believes Misty is a runaway. So they told Corey... Even if we did know, we wouldn't tell you or her mother. So this just puts the fuel on the fire. And Corey went to the media, blasted them. (laughs) But obviously in a small town like that, that is not a good idea. (laughs) Corey is um, a known weed dealer. 
So, like, he is busy making this database and binders and long handwriting. Yeah. He's got to do something that's going to quick cash. Quick turnaround. He can't spend eight hours a day at a job. Uh Uh-uh. He's got (laughs) to sleep sometime. So, um, of course, he just pissed off a bunch of law enforcement. So, they set up a sting to arrest him. And basically shut him up, right? Or try to. So, the sting works. October 15th, 1992. um, they, (laughs) They enter his house. They yell, police, freeze. Corey says, no shit, (laughs) and put his hands in the air. Um, But the spoils of the bus were nothing special. They found 17 grams of weed, which was a little over half an ounce. Thank you for clarifying. And I will will clarify even more. Okay. Um, They also found a pop can pipe, which... You can make a pipe out of a pop can. I can also clarify that okay, later for didn't, you. Didn't know that. Thank you. Um, a pot of dirt, a grow light, um, suspicious empty plastic bags, $149 in cash, and that was it, according okay. to a search warrant record. Good job, SWAT team. Exactly. <laughs> so basically, you barely got anything. So now, obviously, in Washington State... Uh, marijuana is legal, but obviously it wasn't in 1992. Thank you for clarifying that as well. You're welcome. So, um, if now, if you are caught with marijuana in your own private possession, if you have um, anything, if you have an ounce or less, there's no crime. Oh, I no know. penalty. Okay. Nothing. If it's in your house, in your possession. So, obviously, he had a little over half of an ounce. So, he ha- he had barely anything. No, and right? there's eight ounces in a cup. So, that's not even an eighth of a cup. Right. So. Just to put it in terms, I'd understand. Mm, fair. Fair. <laughs> I know. I had to, like, Google all of this just to, like, make sure I'm doing this right. Um, but, uh, so he, he expected to get off easy because he, this was his first offense. It was just pot. (gasps) Obviously. What happened? Obviously, weed wasn't legal in 1982. Okay. Uh, when charges were filed the next day, he was floored. He had four counts of drug dealing, <gasps> two counts of drug possession. His bail was $50,000. What? And he was looking at four years in prison. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is the most maddening. I know. I know. On a Saturday night, Karen. I know. What is wrong with you? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> now I keep need some pot. <laughs> keep reading. Okay, so then cops go to Diana and basically tell her that Corey is this crazy motherfucker and that he is going to fuck up this case for her. So, like they haven't already fucked it up totally. Exactly. 100%. So she puts a restraining order on Corey. 
Now, it's been more than 30 days since Misty has, quote-unquote, oh. ran away. The case wasn't moving forward, and Diana no. didn't know how to push it forward on her own. So, two weeks later, it's early November, Diana dropped the restraining order on Corey. Um, officials reveal that they were going to reopen the Green River Killer case, and they were now going to count the two girls from Puyallup, Anna and Kim as his victims oh okay not sure how Corey did this but somehow he convinced the investigator to tell him where they found the bodies of anna and kim the investigators tell Corey they were found on highway 410 near mile marker 30 so Corey starts to organize search parties and is convinced misty is a victim on December 2nd, nearly three months after she disappeared, Pierce County Sheriff's officially declare Missy as missing under suspicious circumstances, which is a upgrade. You go, Corey. I know. The runaway tag was beginning to be torn away, which is great. Um, okay, so a witness placed... Missy downtown Puyallup at approximately 10 o'clock that night. She was walking uh, westbound on ramp highway of 512. So maybe hitchhiking? Possibly. That's what we're thinking. Okay. So Trina, BFF, and Ruben were interviewed five months after Missy's disappearance. When she was interviewed, Trina told investigators that Reuben was supposed to take her and Missy home that night, but he told them he couldn't because he didn't have enough gas. Missy called him back and told him how to get inside her home so that he could get money to wow. get gas. Reuben still refused and said that he didn't have enough gas to get Missy back to her house, which was six miles from his own. Trina said that after the call um, and the denied request, her and Missy decided that she would walk back to her home and Missy would take the bus. They parted ways at 8.45 p.m. So basically the same story. Okay. It was later revealed that Trina had actually lied about walking back home to really? her home that night. Really? She was actually picked up by her 23-year-old boyfriend, Michael oh, Reiner. no. Uh, Trina. She told of investigators that she and Michael offered Missy Wright home, but she did not trust him and refused. Um, Michael did have a criminal record. Oh, I guess it wasn't official, but he was um, accused of rape oh. when he was 16, but apparently it was dropped, blah, 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 whatever. So he took a polygraph test, but apparently passed, blah, I don't know. Polygraphs just, I don't know. I don't care for them. Um, and apparently he was trying to make himself fall asleep 
because obviously it lowers your heart rate. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. See, so that's why I, you, I don't know. I just well, can't. Well, they're not, you can't use them in court. Yeah. So I just don't really care for them anyways. Um, so then Ruben was questioned. Uh, then he confirmed Trina's story about picking them up, but then about the gas thing, blah, blah, blah. But then also he told investigators that he suffers from blackouts. So, oh, that's convenient. Yeah, so now he's saying that he actually can't remember the second phone call with Misty. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then all of a sudden, he stated that now he woke up at his grandma's farm the next morning. Um, so, who fucking honestly, like, who knows, right? Not covered in blood in the pig pen. <laughs> Well, and, like, right, so it's, it's this whole gas thing. That was the issue. Yeah. But, so how did you end up at your grandma's house if you didn't have gas? You blacked out, Karen. <sighs> exactly. Happens to the best of us, right? Yes. So, February 7th, 1993. Oh, this poor mother. <sighs> A private search for Misty under covered her underwear, jeans, and shoes that she wore during the night she disappeared. The clothes were covered in mud and were rolled up in a ditch near the intersection of State Highway 410. The clothing had been exposed to the environment and elements for an extended period of time. 13 days after the discovery of her clothing, Missy's toothbrush and her hair pick were found approximately one half mile away from the location that her clothing had been found. Toothbrush. So... Interesting. Yeah, I wonder if she had been planning to sleep over at somewhere or yeah. who knows. <gasps> these items were found. Um, oh, sorry. These items found were subjected to uh, lab analysis and tested, which shows that there were no signs of blood or semen. The genes did have three red paint chips, which have been lost in the time after genes were found and tested. A DNA test was done on the genes in 2009. It was discovered that DNA found on the genes did not come from Misty, but actually came from an unidentified male. Investigators spoke to several witnesses who said that Reuben told them the location of Misty's body. He claimed that her body would be discovered six miles away from the location that her clothing was discovered in. His grandmother's farm is six miles away. I was just going to ask, where is from all the this location. in relation to her farm? Reuben did admit to making the statement about the location of her body, but claimed he only said them to get people off his back. He told investigators that the statements were untrue, and he agreed to take a second polygraph test. He passed this one. Despite the fact that uh, he passed, investigators still viewed Reuben as a person of interest. Mm. In 1996, one of Missy's friends accused Reuben of raping her, but refused to go forward with charges. He was convicted of theft. In 2000 and in 2006, his wife got a protective order against him and accused him of threatening her life 
and to burn down her home. Um, investigators have no evidence that Reuben was involved in the case, um, and he has not faced any criminal charges in relation to Missy's disappearance. Missy has been looked at the possible Green River victim, and the paint chips that were found on Missy Jean's were sent for comparison to paint used by Gary Ridgway. Because Gary used to paint vehicles, uh. but the paints were not a match. The samples found on Missy's jeans were lost for a time, but have since been located. Several other people have been questioned about Missy's disappearance, but no arrests have been made. There has um, been no trace of her since the clothing found in 1993. I'm curious if they um, they did a really thorough search of his grandma's farm. I doubt it. Like, like dogs and stuff. I just think <sighs> this detective is just pissing me off. I just don't think he cares, mm, you it know? Sound like it. Like honestly, this Corey guy, there was a lot of people who were bashing him online, but honestly, he was like the only one who was helping. Yeah. You I know, mean, if it wasn't for him, I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't like, know. Would they even have turned, put her on a, right? change the list, what name her list was on, or uh-huh. what list her name was on? <laughs> like, people think oh. that, like, he did it, Corey did it, mm. but I, pe- people, are, you know, are very mean on the internet. I just think that he, he might have some sort of, um mental disorder or something and he was very very obsessed with the green river killer case and he very well could have thought that misty was one of the green river killers victims and he was genuinely trying to help these girls you know how many people i'm sure during the Green River case had binders and newspaper clips. I mean, it's right. su- such a huge event. Right. Histor- I mean, and, you know, nobody knows who it is. Exactly. You look at everybody with suspicion. Yep. It's understandable. Amen. <sighs> Missy was level-headed, but her mother said she was a naive teenager at the time she went missing. Uh, who wasn't at 14? <sighs> I know. I was an idiot. I mean, I still am, but... (sighs) Diana and the police involved in the investigation believe that Misty was killed and possibly the victim of a serial serial killer. Uh, Misty was declared dead by the Pierce County Medical Examiner in May of 2000. Mm -hmm. Her body has never been found and her case remains unsolved. If you have any information concerning this case... Please contact the Puyallup Police Department, 253-841-5415, or the Pierce County Sheriff's Office at 253-591-3337. There's also a Bringing Misty Copsy Home Facebook page that they regularly update. Uh, you can also go to the charlieproject.org 
and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. She is still on all the missing children websites, everything. Um, She's still considered missing. So if you have any information or know anything, please call or send a Facebook message to that group. I know a lot of people um, who are just hearing about this are uh, privately messaging that Facebook group. I've seen um, a lot of that, which is great because I feel like any information could be useful. I'm kind of with Corey within connection to the two other girls. Yeah. Or is it possibly being the same person for all three? Right. So, obviously, you guys, there's a lot more information. Oh, I'm sure. Um, that the News Tribune um, stories 1, 2, and 3 by, I think it was Sean Robinson, written very well. Um, you guys should read it. Um, there's pictures and there's actual quotes and actually has uh, Corey's... Uh, journal entries oh, in it wow. and stuff and it it was very well written um so if you're interested in this case take a look at that uh cory had a lot of just information you know he just kept a lot of stuff and yeah it's, i think it's important i mean especially yeah in a time where there wasn't facebook and social media where you can just screen what is it screen share screen save screenshot screenshot god damn it yeah what are we talking about no copy and paste copy and paste oh fucking no i don't know you actually have to do the research yourself that's what i'm trying to say you can't just google stuff you know that's what i'm trying to say well when it comes to googling stuff (laughs) <laughs> I should bring us to our closer. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Good. So my story, um, if you were listening during the first part of our episode, happened in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I Googled <laughs> mysterious happenings in Oregon forests. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what I found um, the uh, from Wikipedia. Have you heard of the Forest Grove Sound? No. It was an a sound, oh. an unexplained noise, described by the Oregonian as a mechanical scream heard in Forest Grove, Oregon in February 2016. A high-pitched noise was heard at night. The Department of Forestry determined that their equipment was not the cause of the noise. The news about the noise was first shared with Dave Nemeyer by a Forest Grove resident who posted a video of it on the city's Facebook page. Oh, wow. The Washington Post, that's how huge this was, described the noise as sounding like a giant flute played off pitch. Wow. Car brakes or a steam whistle. NBC News described it as akin to a bad one-note violin solo broadcast over a microphone with nonstop feedback. It lasted from 10 seconds to several minutes. Uh, the, The fire department of Forest Grove did not consider it a safety risk. The noise occurred... Um, near Gales Creek Road. So if you're familiar with Forest Grove, you're going to know where that's at. I'm not. I don't. Me either. (laughs) 
the city, public works department, nor the fire department were able to explain it. Uh, there were no issues with gas lines in the Forest Grove at that time. And in February 2016, Andrew Dawes, a professor of physics at Pacific University, mapped the locations where the noise had been heard. Wow. So it was heard in different, lasting for different amounts of time. Oh, weird. Um, and it, he mapped it and he couldn't pinpoint it as coming from one single source. Ooh. I don't like that. Um, oh, I should have led with this, but Forest Grove is near Portland. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. So there were 200 calls made to the police department throughout February. Jesus. Um, all saying that this, trying to come up with why the sound was made. Mm-hmm. Uh, frogs, aliens, <laughs> Bigfoot. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, the police ended up halting their investigation until further information appeared. After February 2016, they never heard the noise. Whoa. The final plot uh, was pointed on February 27, 2016. Hmm. So it must have been all throughout February people were hearing this noise. Is at different times, different places, different durations. Um, the police has since closed the case. Are you ready to hear what they say it was? Yeah. Are you ready for this? Yeah. If we didn't have any more reasons to be frustrated with police, I have another one for you. Okay. A faulty attic fan. What? Everybody throughout Forest Grove, Oregon, throughout February at different times is hearing a faulty attic fan. Or a heat pump. You might as well just tell everyone I was a fucking frog. screeching off-note flute loud enough for everyone to hear. Or not everyone, but at different locations. All right. Oh. Uh, this is kind of fun. In October 2016, a performing arts theater in Froes, Forest Grove created a haunted house called Aliens in the Grove based on the noise. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that, yeah, that's just the ending yeah, right there. Yeah. Kind I of like an interesting, I never heard of that. No, me either. And it's not that far from home. No. So uh, thank you to YouTube. Here is a Coin5 news little blip broadcast about the noise perfect and the anchor is in forest grove so i'm gonna play a little bit of that for you we don't own the rights to this i don't know i just went to youtube (laughs) (laughs) so uh here we go what is that I don't know. I, the flute description was accurate. Yeah, it's not a frog. (laughs) (laughs) Not an attic fan. No. It's not a heat pump. No. Yeah, it sounds like a flute. Or it it sounds like the recorders they send home at school. (gasps) Yes. Yeah. It's a a fourth grader with his recorder Mm -hmm. going around in Forest Grove. We solved the mystery. Or maybe somebody gave a recorder to Bigfoot. And he's practicing. Marcy, case closed. That's nice. All right, you guys. You guys can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder of Ages. You can also rate and 
review and mm-hmm. subscribe. Hell yeah, you can. On uh, all of your listening platforms. Oh, yeah. And email us. Please reach out. We would love to hear from Y-O-U. Oh, we would. At um, murderofages at gmail.com. All right. Close us out. Oh, real quick. Sorry. Don't forget about our Patreon page. Oh, yeah. If you would like to donate your hard-earned stimulus check to us. (laughs) Y'all are getting an extra 1400 so. Are we really? That's what I hear. No, that would be cool. Give us five bucks of that. One dollar. And we will send you some merch. Okay, that's the end of my. Close us out. It's all you perverse, notorious waste. We'll meet you there.